Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. It's a bright spring morning. A young woman rides out of the gates of Beaugency, a town in the shadow of a huge, newly built stone castle on the banks of the River Loire in France. She's in a hurry. Her freedom and the whole course of the rest of her life depends on whether she can move fast enough. She takes with her only a handful of her closest attendants and servants, people she trusts with her life. She doesn't take her two little daughters, seven-year-old Marie and Alex, who's only one. She knows that in leaving them, she may never see them again, but she has no choice. She also leaves behind something else that tugs at her heartstrings. Something taken from her just days before. Her crown. The year is 1152. And for 15 years, this young woman has been Queen of France, the wife of King Louis VII, one of Europe's most powerful rulers. But now, all that is over. Her marriage to the king has broken down to the point that even counselling sessions with the Pope, obviously the world's leading relationship guru, have failed to bring them back together. She says her husband, the king, has been a sexless boar and a cold fish, more of a monk than a king. He says that she slept with her own uncle while they'd been away on crusade. The official reason for the annulment of their marriage is consanguinity, a fancy word for the medieval Christian ban on marrying your own cousin. It's a convenient excuse for breaking up pretty much any aristocratic or royal union. Because then, as now, it's pretty hard to be an aristocrat without marrying your own cousin. But legal specifics don't really matter. What matters is that this woman is now free. Sure, she's lost her crown, but she's taken control of her destiny which is why she's in a hurry. Because hanging on to her freedom and control of her own life means hurtling as fast as she possibly can away from her ex-husband in Beaugency and traveling 120 miles south to Poitiers, the capital and power hub of her own lands. Along the way, lying in wait, are opportunistic young noblemen hell-bent on becoming her next husband and taking control of her territories for themselves. For Eleanor, this could mean kidnap, forced marriage, and even rape. It's a huge gamble, but if she can make the journey, she'll be able to shape her own future and change the course of history. Because she knows what she needs to do when she gets to Poitiers, and if her plan works, she'll end up with more power than ever before. I'm Dan Jones, and from something else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is history. A dynasty to die for. Episode 1, Queen on the Run.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Dan Jones. I'm a historian and author, and this is the very first episode of my new podcast, This Is History. We're starting with some of the wildest stories I've ever come across from the Middle Ages and beyond. In this first season, we're going to meet my favourite family in the whole of history, a family that spent generations at war with itself and whose beefs and battles shaped much of Europe and rippled out all the way to the Middle East. We're going to be diving into the treacherous world of the Plantagenets and asking how this family of schemers, backstabbers, murderers, villains and renegades, so dangerous people thought they must be descended from the devil, ruled as kings and queens for more than 300 years. We'll meet crusader kings and troublesome archbishops. We'll see children go to war with their parents and wives take down their husbands. We'll travel in space as well as time, from the borders of England and Scotland to the foothills of the Pyrenees, and from the windswept coasts of Ireland to the sun-baked plains of Palestine and Syria. Like every good history show, there are worthy reasons you should listen to this story. Yes, we'll learn how the deepest principles of royal rule and English government were laid down all the way to Magna Carta. But between you and me, the reason you're really going to want to listen is the juicy psychodrama of a family living permanently on the edge of madness. Move over the Sopranos and make way for the Plantagenets. I'll be releasing two short episodes every week. And if you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can listen to it without the ads. And you'll be able to hear a weekly bonus episode in which I'll bring you more morsels of medieval gossip. But this story starts with our young runaway, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Before we get back to her perilous escape, let's get to know her a little. Eleanor of Aquitaine was probably born in 1124, I say probably because, as we'll discover, not everything in the Middle Ages was as well-documented as nerds like me would like, and scribes and chroniclers seldom bothered to note down very much at all about women, except when they did something exceptionally sinful. What we do know is that Eleanor had a colourful family background. She grew up in Aquitaine, an area that took up the entire southwest corner of modern France, and was known as a hotbed of romantic, lyric poetry. Eleanor's grandfather was such a prolific poet that he became known as the Troubadour Duke. Comrades, I shall write a fitting poem, one with more folly than sense, all laden with love, joy and youth. And let he be called a knave who doesn't understand it or learn it, for that matter, by heart. People who like poetry hardly part from love. When Eleanor was three, the old duke died. And then her father died when she was 13. With no brothers, she was her father's heir. But a 13-year-old girl wasn't trusted with political power, so Eleanor was married into the French royal family. 
a wedding was arranged to the prince who became Louis VII, that monkish, sexless bore of a king we met earlier. So who was this 13-year-old bride? What did she look like? What made her tick? At the time, writers and poets said she was beautiful and charismatic. But they didn't elaborate much, and it's hard to read between the lines of conventional praise. There are no lifelike portraits to turn to. Her tomb effigy, carved a few years after she died, shows an oval face with high cheekbones, arched eyebrows, a thin, angular nose and a small mouth. A version of this is how we have to imagine Eleanor at 13. What we don't have to imagine is how things turned out between her and Louis. Their marriage was a slow-burn disaster. As we heard, Eleanor was from the sensuous, troubadour country of the French South. Louis was a buttoned-up Parisian. Growing up, he had expected to be a bishop, which suited him well, until a pig came along with a different idea. Louis's older brother, first in line to the throne, was out riding when this fateful pig ran across his path. The horse reared and threw Louis's brother to his death. Thus, Louis was catapulted from a life of chaste religious contemplation to that of heir to the throne. But the personality clash between Eleanor and Louis wasn't the issue. Medieval marriages didn't have to be romantic. Nor was it absolutely disastrous that when the couple went on crusade to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, there were all sorts of salacious rumours about Eleanor committing incest and adultery with her uncle. What goes on on crusade evidently didn't stay on crusade in the 12th century. But medieval marriages did need to be productive, which is a euphemism for making boys. And that was where things went wrong. Eleanor and Louis only had two children, both girls, Marie and Alex. As Louis got older, he was ever more in need of a male heir, and he was willing to blow up his marriage to get one. But the energy behind the marital breakup probably came from the Queen and not the King. It's been suggested, and I think credibly, that towards the end of their marriage, Eleanor deliberately refused to go anywhere near Louis. It's pretty hard to produce male heirs with someone who won't even be in the same room as you, so this forced Louis to end their partnership. Whatever the case, that's where it all ended up. And that's how Eleanor found herself where we first met her. Newly single, 28 years old, and on the run from Beaugency to her power base in Poitiers. Trying to avoid the clutches of French noblemen, hoping to swoop in to claim her and Aquitaine for themselves. The question is, will she make it? When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? 
Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The road from Beaugency to Poitiers then is exactly the one you'd take now. Follow the Loire downriver for 55 miles, cross the water at Tours, then scramble south for 65 miles until you hit your destination. It's one of the prettiest parts of France, the broad river flowing through lush green countryside, dotted with vineyards, fine castles looming here and there. Thanks to that patchy medieval record-keeping I was moaning about earlier, we don't have much detail about this journey from Eleanor's side. I wish she'd kept a diary, or that Instagram stories had existed back then. But what we do know from a chronicler based in Tours is that very early into her journey, maybe even on the first or second day, the first attempt is made to capture her. The chronicler writes that the Queen was travelling through Blois when Theobald, the 22-year-old Count of Blois, wished to marry her by force. What that probably means is that Theobald was stalking Eleanor with a group of knights. And by knights, I don't mean Heath Ledger in a knight's tale. This is the 12th century, and knights aren't glamorous. They're heavily armed, highly trained killers on horseback, used to using violence to get their way. To evade Theobald and his goons, Eleanor has to travel under the cover of darkness a dangerous way to go anywhere at a time when there's no light but the moon and stars, and anyone or anything could be lurking at the roadside. It's almost too stressful to imagine this small group creeping through the night, wincing with every crunch of their horse's hooves, every twig snapping in the undergrowth. But she does it. Eleanor escapes. And once she's out of Theobald's territories, she's making good progress. At least, she is until she's just a day's ride from her own capital of Poitiers. Then, Eleanor is tipped off that a 16-year-old called Geoffrey of Anjou is preparing to ambush her at Port de Pile, a bridge over the River Vienne. Who tells her? According to the same chronicler, she's warned by angels that Geoffrey's coming for her. Could that mean a spy, a gut instinct, a dream? Frustratingly, the chronicler doesn't feel like elaborating. In any case, Eleanor changes course and takes a detour around the bridge, leaving Geoffrey empty-handed. Once again, Eleanor has slipped through the net. And when she arrives in Poitiers, safe territory full of loyal Aquitanians who will protect her from power-hungry young men like Theobald and Geoffrey, she's free to make her own plans. She knows ruling Aquitaine in her own right will be a little easier at the age of 28 than at 13. But she also knows that, thanks to the less-than-enlightened gender politics of the time, she'll have to marry again. Fortunately, 
whom she marries is now very much up to her. And she already has a candidate in mind. In fact, he's the elder brother of Geoffrey, the excitable 16-year-old she'd dodged at the bridge. His name is Henry Fitzempress, better known to history as Henry Plantagenet. At this time, he's the coming man in French politics. He's only 19 himself, but he's a grey-eyed, red-headed ball of energy, always halfway between cracking a joke and cracking someone's skull. And he's starting to put together a patchwork of lands and territories that will give him even more status and power than the king himself. Eleanor spotted him some years before at the French royal court. She may even have hinted to him then that one day their paths would cross again. Now that time has come. But inconveniently, it seems that Henry is more than 200 miles away, in Normandy, plotting a full-blown conquest of England. Eleanor needs to stop him before he sets off. So she writes him an urgent letter with a proposal of marriage and sends it off by messengers on horseback. As they gallop off into the distance, her heart is probably in her throat. But within days, on the 6th of April, the message reaches Henry and it's a letter that will change everything. Next time, we'll get to know Henry and find out why Eleanor has decided this fiery teenager will be the perfect husband. And over the course of the series, we'll follow the dramatic consequences of that decision as the pair of newlyweds ruthlessly carve out an empire, changing Europe forever. But no medieval tale ends with happily ever after. We'll fall with Eleanor and Henry into a spiral of hatred, murder and treachery as the hunger for power tears the family apart. It's going to be a bumpy ride, but there's only one way to find out who ends up on top. Stay with me. This is history. One more thing before you go. If you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every week I'll reveal the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. The first bonus episode will be dropping this Thursday, and on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.